0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to to see you with us this morning. Thank you for for coming and and joining us for worship today. I want to give you just a a few announcements this morning before we begin uh, to point your attention to a few things in your bulletin. Uh, This week or today, this morning after service, we have a congregational meeting. So if you're a member here at Bear Creek, uh, invite you, encourage you, uh, highly recommend for you to stay after the service for, for a quick meeting so that we can discuss a few things, uh, including next year's budget, as well as leaders, uh, elder and deacon candidates, and go over just a few things uh, regarding the business of the church. So that will be today after worship. Uh, Tuesday, we have growth group. So if you're part of the Tuesday growth group, we'll see you at the parsonage at 6. I did send an email out with the details, but if you did not get it and are part of that group, just let me know. And uh, next Sunday is the fifth Sunday, and as many of you are aware, the fifth Sundays are the days that, that I am off, and so Todd Allman has graciously agreed to preach next Sunday. Uh, I'm excited to hear from him and, and hear his, him bring God's Word to, to you next week, uh, and he's been preparing and working on it, so we're, we're excited to have him come and, and lead you in worship next, next Sunday. You'll see there some, some information and details on the missionary sale I believe I saw some sign-up sheets in the back of the Narthex, so feel free to, to check those out. Diane, is there any announcement for that for that sign-up sheet that I'm missing? Okay. okay, self-explanatory, check out the sign-up sheet. Perfect. That'll work, thank you. <laughs> if you're looking for something to do, rest assured, we will find something for you to do. <laughs> Are there any other announcements this morning? Yes. Thanks. Any any other announcements this morning? Right. Let me read to you from Psalm one nineteen as we begin our worship service this morning. We actually are reading the very last stanza of this very long psalm. Let me let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. What an appropriate psalm. We've been, we've been reading this psalm uh, as we begin worship for the last several months now. And here as we finish it is a psalm of, of praise for God's law and, and thanksgiving and celebration of God's law being, being something that is not seen as burdensome or uh, a duty or obligation, but this is a delight that the psalmist is delighting in God's law. And here at the very end of the psalm is the first confession of law breaking that we have in the psalm and notice what he what he says is his solution he says i have gone astray like a lost sheep and so what hope is there for me is for me to pray to the lord and ask him to seek me to come and find me and help me not to forget his commandments pray with me let us let us begin our worship service father we have gone astray like a lost sheep seek your servants this morning. Help us not to forget your laws and your statutes and your commandments. That they not be burdensome to us, but a delight. That because of Christ we have received so much. God, help us to worship you this morning. To praise and to celebrate all that you've done. Be with us. During this time, help us and teach us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, for your word is truth. Pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's sing together this morning. Our first hymn is 726. We praise you, O God. Please stand and sing. Thank you. You may be seated. Eric is going to come forward and lead us in our capital fund. Good morning. I want to just read from Psalm 717.
1: I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise
0: to the name of the Lord, the Most High. I want to give thanks from the church leadership. I want to give thanks to y'all from the trustees. Um, to what you do with this Sunday, um, with our capital fund is is very helpful. And you know, just from from the leadership and from the trustees, it's just a simple, just simple thank you. Uh, it's important and it's not done without without you guys so again thank you Well, as we continue to get readjusted to worship here in the sanctuary, we are uh, beginning again our, our children's story and nursery. And so this morning, Jessica Black is going to lead our children's story. And so I'll invite all of our, our young ones and Jessica to come down and, and get ready for that. Uh, but if you would consider, we'll, we'll plan on getting a sign-up sheet in the, Nor- the Northex soon. Uh, but if you would consider signing up for children's story as well as signing up for, for our nursery our nursery t- is after our children's story. For those of our young ones that are four years old and younger, uh, it's, it's good for parents <laughs> to, to be able to have some help and, and have a space in case their young ones get too uh, too wild and energetic this morning. But we're, we're thankful for all of our young ones to be here and have so many. Uh, Jessica, thanks for, for doing children's story this morning.
1: Good morning. How are you guys? I have missed being up here with you. This is so fun. All right. You ready for the hard question first? What's that? Okay, good. Not as hard as I thought. Okay. So this is my Bible. I love my Bible. And I want to share something from my Bible with you this morning that we're going to hear more about in just a few minutes. Okay. It, it starts off. We're in. Do you remember the book of the Bible that we've been learning about? What is it called? The, the Bi- right, good, good the Bible and we, we come down a layer. Oh, well, we did talk about a psalm this morning. this one is this one is called Deuteronomy, right So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and it starts off with saying, at the end of every seven years you shall grant a release and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor, shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. Yeah? You can go get it. It's okay. <laughs> so, do you, do you know what a creditor is? You don't? Do you, do you think you might have any creditors? Hey all right. That's the first big question. What does a creditor mean? Okay. Do you know what credit is? Oh, okay. Right. So we hear that we hear the word credit when we talk about shopping, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of people, what kind of cards do people sometimes use when they go shopping? Credit a credit card, okay. right? And uh, people give credit? Yeah. To other people. Oh. That's right. You give credit when you've borrowed something like an idea from somebody else when you're making something, right? If if you wrote a great story and I decided to write a story that was like your story but maybe changed a little bit, then I would give you credit for the original idea, right? So so that's one thing that, that we think of when we think about the word credit, right? So we think about money a lot of times, and we think about giving somebody credit. We think about giving them acknowledgement when when they've done something that we then borrow, right? <clears throat> Do you know what, what debt is? Mm. I know. You're like this is church not a finance lesson. What's going on here? <laughs> ah, close. That's dead, not debt. So <laughs> So so debt, debt is what you owe when you have used credit, okay? So credit is money that you don't have when we talk about it from a money perspective, right? But that you're spending. Oh, that's doesn't sound like a good idea. How does that work? Why are we talking about shopping I know, I know. It's going to come around. I promise. Work with me on this, okay? Yeah. So sometimes, sometimes things like credit are planned, but debt sometimes is not a planned thing, right? Sometimes you have a need and you have to have something, but you don't have money for it, right? And so when you have to borrow that money from somebody. That's called debt. And so this is what we're talking about here. The creditor is the person who actually has the money that the person who is in debt uses. And so our scripture is going to talk about what the job of the person who has the money is. Okay? But, but basically, here, here is the thing, right? We normally try to talk about only spending money that we have, but sometimes we can't help it. Right? Now, the good thing is the Bible tells us what we need to think about as far as that is concerned right, that we actually need to need to remember that sometimes we are the person who borrows the money, sometimes we are the person who is lending the money, right, that we are the creditor. <clears throat> now, if you had to borrow a lot of money for something really important that you couldn't help it, we're not talking about just like a fund purchase, but something you really needed, how long do you think you would have to work to be able to pay that back? Yeah, right, maybe 70 years, Right. Now, do you think that it sounds fun to have to work for 70 years to pay back money that you borrowed one time 70 years ago? No, and that's what this is talking about, right? That that's hard, that that's hard. And so God talks to us about being able to be generous when someone has borrowed something from us, right? That, that there is a time for us to even be able to say, you know what? You don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Now, we'll also talk about how that relates to all other kinds of stuff, but I'm going to leave that to Pastor Patrick because there's a lot more to come and you don't want more finance lessons from me this morning, right? I want more. I want more. <laughs> how about we settle for cookies and call it good? Woo! All right. <laughs> Thanks you guys. Let me let me pray for us real quick. God, thank you so much for these wonderful children that you have blessed our church family with. Thank you for your word, God, and for your good instructions to us in all things. We love you, Lord. Make our ears and our hearts and our minds ready um, for what we are going to be learning today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: a copy of the Apostles' Creed. And as as you're pulling it out or maybe reflecting on how you've memorized this from a young age, the Apostles' Creed stands as something of of great importance to us. It is why we say it every week. And not because this creed is tradition or ritualistic, but because it is truth. Uh, We say this creed aloud every week because we believe it. And this is what, what it is that we believe and unite ourselves around following the creed, we always sing the doxology, uh, which is printed if you need it in the bottom of the, the bulletin. <clears throat> but the doxology following the Apostles' Creed is, a, is intentional. Because by, by saying the Apostles' Creed, we are pronouncing truth. This is what we believe. This is what we hold to be true. And then by singing the doxology, we are praising the God who has revealed this truth to us. And so I'm going to invite you to stay seated and say the Apostles' Creed with me, But then as Lynn begins the doxology, I'll invite you to stand and and sing praises for the God of truth with me. So say the Apostles' Creed aloud with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. While you're standing, if you would grab a hymnal and turn with me to hymn 470, we'll sing Dear Lord and Father of Mankind together. Thank you. Please be seated. If you will, uh, I invite you this time to grab your Bibles or to grab a phone that has a Bible app on it or to grab one of the blue Bibles on the end of your pew, whichever you prefer and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. This morning we are looking at uh, the entire 15th chapter of this book as we continue to make our way through it. I want to read to you Deuteronomy 15, which Jessica started for us with our our children, and we'll continue and and pick up in verse 1 and read the whole chapter. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow and you shall rule over many nations. But they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing and he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because For this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake For there will never cease to be poor in the land Therefore I command you you shall open wide your hand to your brother to the needy and to the poor in your land If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired servant he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock You shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, We, I need your help this morning. As we come to your word help us to come humbly not sitting in dominion over this text but sitting in submission under it teach us what this chapter in Deuteronomy means what it looks like the sabbatical year what the Lord's release points to help us to see the truth of this passage, and help us to see how it points us to Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. May we be free, may we be released in Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen. There are a lot of things in life that you only have to do once to know that you would never want to do that again. One such thing for me is the eye doctor. I've been once in my entire life and never want to go back. And it is a terrible place. You are there because you're afraid that there might be a problem with your eyesight, and you're already a little nervous. And so to help ease your nerves and help ease the tension you might feel, the optometrist decides that the best thing for you is to test you. And so this is what he does. He, he puts you through a, the, the ringer of all these tests, and I think tests are an appropriate name because it always feels like I'm failing them. First, they, they have you do the acuity test, where they have you stand at the line, and you cover up one eye, and you read the letters on the, on the, on the chart. I, I, I always remember trying to read the, the line past what I could actually see to, to try and impress the doctor, make sure that I'm covering my bases. I can read actually what you think I can't read, which, of course, I undo myself because the doctor can clearly tell I'm just making up letters as I read it. And then after this, they put this, this giant metal device in front of you, they say, here, rest your chin right up against it. Nothing bad will happen, I promise. And they have you open, open your eyes wide so that you can see very clearly. And then they shine a really bright light right into them. And then they give you that little puff of air to make sure that everything's working fine. And then they say, now can you see? No. I can't see anything now. And then, and then finally, you get the, the one or two exam. Where they give you lens after lens. Can you see better with number one or number two? You look really closely and you go, well, is there a difference? And they give you another one and it's one or two. And I was like, these look like the same as the first two. And really, I, I'm pretty sure that the joke is on us because the doctor is just giving you the same lens over and over again and making you decide. I couldn't help but think of the optometrist this week as I was looking at, at Deuteronomy 15. Because I think that if, if we were to apply the optometrist. Test with the lens there are about several there are several different lenses you could look and read this passage through and depending on which lens you have in front of you would actually change the the way that you apply this text and interpret this text and so this morning what what i want to do is actually help help you read this text through through four different lenses what happens if we put on an economical lens and read this passage what happens if we put on a social lens What does this passage mean then? What about a a Christ-centered or a Christological lens? What about a personal lens? What does this passage mean when you read it for yourself? So this is what I want us to do this morning, is to walk through each of these lenses and show you how we read this this passage. And and hopefully, by, by God's grace, we will be able to look through these lenses and see the beauty of His grace in this sabbatical year. Lens number one the economical lens. Now, I am by no means an economics expert. I was terrible at it in school. I still don't understand the stock market. I am not your econ teacher by any means. But when putting on the economical lens and reading this passage, there is an absurdity to this passage that comes jumping off the page. I mean, just imagine what it would look like if here in in, in our Western world, if, if in America today, every seven years... All debts were forgiven, just wiped away, gone. Imagine how many houses would be bought in December of year six. I mean, it'd be forgiven. You'd never make a house payment because come January, it's, it's gone. Now, there's, there's a few options that, that I've, I've found that people are kind of split over how you interpret this. And I think they, they are split because of how absurd it seems on the surface surely this can't mean forgiving all debts every seven years. And so a few of the options are, for one, it means canceling all debts, but a, a, a likely option is that it's simply a deferral of payments. They tie the, this view ties the sabbatical year with the fallow year. So every seven years, farmers were not allowed to plow and plant. They had to leave the ground fallow and let it rest for a, for a year. And so because of this, if, they're letting, if farmers are letting the ground rest then they're not having any income that year. And if they're not having any income, how can they expect to make payments on the debts they owe? And so this command, then, this interpretation says that this is not a cancellation, but simply a deferral. Just wait a year, you don't have to make any payments this year, and begin, resume paying the following year. A third option is uh, tied to a little bit of the the pledge. This interprets the, uh, verse 1, every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor uh, that you shall not exact it, your hand shall release it. And so typically this is kind of what we would assume to be collateral. For in order to take out a loan, in order to borrow money from a friend, an Israelite would lend them a corner of their field. Whatever comes out of this field, that's yours until I pay the debts. And so the seventh year would be a release of the collateral. They would give back the pledge. They would give back the corner of the field that they had lent out. But I I really, I truly believe in understanding this passage and fitting it in, tying it in from verse 1 all the way to the end, I think the only way that we can properly interpret this passage is this first option, that it is a cancellation of all debts. Because other options, I think these other options exist not because they're trying to give an honest interpretation of the text, but they're wrestling with the fact that it's calling on, on on Israel to just simply forgive all debts. And that's absurd. And when, when we look at the absurdity of it, we, we are tempted to say, well, maybe that's not what it means. Maybe it might, it might mean something else. And I, I think that it's a, a faulty way of coming to Scripture. Whether it be Deuteronomy 15 or any other passage in the book, just because it seems outlandish doesn't mean it's wrong. And I believe that this... This command, this sabbatical year, is a cancellation of debt. And that's just one aspect of it. The second aspect of this sabbatical year is that if someone sells themselves to you as a way of of paying a debt, that after six years of service, in the seventh year, you must set them free. Now, typically, when we think of slavery, we think of the South, and we think of chattel slavery. Where someone is a a permanent slave, they are marked as a slave, and there is no forgiveness or freedom for the slave. And that's not what this is. This is debt servitude, not chattel slavery. This is a a temporary status of slavery until a debt is paid off. It's also worth noting that this is not the same seven-year cycle. So it's not that if you put yourself into slavery in year six, you are forgiven and set free the following year. Every slave who would enter into this agreement would simply do a a six-year period starting whenever they entered into that slavery. It is a separate individual cycle. But regardless, I mean, worst-case scenario is six years of slavery. It doesn't matter if you pay off the the debt in full by that time or not. It doesn't matter if the debt would take you a lifetime to pay off. After six years, you are free and the debt is forgiven. And then the third aspect of, of this command of this chapter is God says for them to take the firstborn of all their flocks and herds and dedicate them to the Lord, consecrate them, set them apart. And he says don't put the cattle to work, don't shear the the sheep, earn nothing from them, take them to the temple and eat them before the Lord. If there's any blemish or weakness, you, you must not take it, don't bring it, it's broken, it stays home. It has to be the firstborn, it has to be flawless. And again, notice the absurdity of, of the law from an economic standpoint. Because after, after all of your hard work, after getting started on your own, every year you did this. You're waiting for months to see the fruit of your labors, the blessing of the Lord and the firstborn of your flock. You finally reach the point where you can see the fruit of it. Or your flocks can multiply, and you can get more work done because now you have more cattle and more livestock. And God says, "Give it away. Don't, don't let it pull a, pull a cart. Don't don't shear its wool. Just give it, kill it, and eat it." I mean, I, I hear this, I read this this passage, and my first thought is. This is a recipe for a failed economy. I mean, I I know enough about econ to know that the market would never survive the seventh year. And then have to do it seven years later. And seven years after that. And seven years after that. The housing market would crash. The finance market would crash over and over and over again. But you see in this thought and in this economical lens i'm reminded that god's economy is not our economy he doesn't work the same way that we think we work you see in our economy the market is by all intents and purposes the market is a god i mean think about how we treat the market we personify it 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 rises it sleeps it, it wakes it moves It slumps. It rises. I mean, we, we put all these things into it. It is a living thing. We depend on it for retirement, for savings, for stocks and investment, for real estate. I mean, our way of living is run by the market. We even bow down to it and pray that it changes in a way that blesses us. That if we make our sacrifices to the gods of the market, if we put our money in, then the market will reward us and give us money back out. The market is a God. But God's economy is different. Because God's economy is not based on capitalism. It is not based on investment. It is not based on hard work. It is not based on finance. God's economy is based on grace. You see, He can forgive debts. He can release slaves. He can consecrate the firstborn and all the while sustain the economy and prosper His people. see, before we can truly understand and apply Deuteronomy 15, I think we have to first realize that in our Western mind, the economy, the market, is an idol. And when we realize this and we remove the idol of the market, then we can come to understand that sabbatical year is for the good of the people, not the bad of the economy. I think the sabbatical year works to tear down the idol of the economy. It works to tear down the trust that we place in finances and the trust that we place in debts and loans and credit and investments. It is not the economy that gives life. It is not the market that sustains. It is the Lord. It is only the Lord. Lens number two, the, the social lens. So if we take the idol of economy out of the way and we, we put on a, a new set of, of lenses to look at this passage, we can see the impact of this command on the social standing, and the social classes of Israel's people. As, as Jessica taught our children this morning, typically when we think of, of loans and credit and debt, even our young ones think of shopping. We think of buying a car or a house. We think of spending too much time at Target or on Amazon. We, we think of, of, of college loans and ways to pay the bills by taking out debts, by buying things. This, this wasn't the case for Israel. Israel didn't take out loans so that they could go to the store and buy a bunch of stuff. Now, these, these are loans that were needed so that the family wouldn't starve see there were so many factors outside of their control israel was an agrarian society they depended on the crops for sustenance and there were so many factors when you depend upon the crops that that are outside of your control that could make for such a bad bad season i mean there's what if you have too little rain what if you have too much rain what if you have bad seed what if you have infertile soil Or maybe you get not enough sun or or too much sun or all these things. All of a sudden, you don't have crops to sell, which means you don't have income, which means you have no way to pay bills and you have no way to buy food. You have no way to feed your kids. See, with all these factors, any one of them could lead your family into poverty, and it could happen any year. Unless someone can loan you money. Only by that would you be able to support your family again until, until you could get back on your own feet. Until you could get to next season and plant new crops. And these debts weren't so that you could buy something you couldn't afford, but so that your family wouldn't die of starvation. And you see, in the best of seasons, let's say you have a bad season, you take out a loan. In the best of seasons, you could get back on your feet. You could pay off the loan from the previous year and move on. But what happens if one bad season is followed by another bad season? And then another bad season, and then another bad season. And you have years and years and years of just debts after debt after debt after debt. debt. I mean, we know today, debts don't just disappear. They pass on even to the next generation. So that it's not just the father who takes out the loan that is in poverty for the rest of his life. He's now cast his son into poverty for the rest of his life. And as the son continues to take out debts, it passes on to the next generation. And the generation after that. And this cycle of poverty just becomes this giant pit of despair where no one can escape. And there is never any hope of getting out of it. The debts keep growing, the hole keeps getting bigger, and you're never going to get out of it. So much of the conversation today in our world around poverty is about money and income and statistics and race and demographics and socioeconomic classes and where people live and urban versus rural and all these other things. It's about statistics, it's about a line of poverty. A standard of living. No one ever mentions the people behind the statistics. No one ever puts faces to the numbers. Deuteronomy 15 does just that. It puts a face to the number. See, God is not concerned with the whys, the hows, or the statistics behind how someone ended up in poverty. Or why they're there. God is concerned with the people living trapped and enslaved in poverty for generation after generation after generation with no hope of ever escaping it. Because the system is broken. You see, the social lens, as we read Deuteronomy 15, this social lens reveals the heart behind the command. It is a heart for Israel. It is a heart that God has for his people. I mean, notice notice the language See what the language in this passage teaches us. You have familial language. If your brother or your sister becomes poor, if your fellow Hebrew, this is not applied to the foreigner, it is only applied to those within the confines of Israel, their own people, their family members. You also have in verse 12 an equal treatment of men and women. The command is the same, whether it's a male servant or a female servant. Treat them both equally. Then you have the, the personal language. Your. It is your brother. It is your sister. It is your poor. It is your needy. I mean, there's this sense of ownership in the, in the interests of, the, of those impoverished. There's a shared concern between those that have and those that have not. It's been said that the health of the nation is determined not by its military strength or its academia or its public policy. The health of any nation has always been determined by how it cares for its weakest and most vulnerable people. See, they're not just the poor and needy. Deuteronomy 15 says they're your poor and needy. With this lens, you can see that how we view those in need how we view the, the impoverished. Our views don't come from what political party we align ourselves with. Or our views on social reform. No, we, we, how we view those in need comes directly from our hearts. And this is why we're given a, giving a warning in verse 9. Take care. Lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year is near." And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. It's so easy to assume that those in poverty are there because of some fault of their own. Some mistake that they've made. Some, some failure of their own. And sure, it's the case for some. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. But Deuteronomy 15 doesn't make that distinction. Deuteronomy 15 simply says those in need. What would it look like if the church cared for our poor and needy with a heart free of grudging looks and unworthy thoughts? What would it look like if we cared for those, even those that had made bad mistakes that led them into their current situation? What would it look like if the church actually cared with the heart, the social heart that the Lord had for his people? Care for your brothers and sisters in need. And do it with a heart that mimics the Lord's heart. Seeing them as image bearers. Seeing them as as simply the fact that they are are humans. And because of this, they are worthy of the enjoyment of God's creation in freedom and dignity. So that's economical lens and the the social lens. But let's let's dive a little bit deeper. Let's go into the the Christological or the the Christ-centered lens what's this command in Deuteronomy 15 what's it really about or maybe we should ask who's it really about and I think we, we need to understand that Deuteronomy 15 is is about the sabbatical year it is a, an elaboration of that fourth commandment the Sabbath remember the Sabbath and keep it holy on it you shall not work but you shall rest from all your labors we know as we as we've studied that all of the law points us to Jesus and The Sabbath does especially because he is Lord of the Sabbath. That he provides rest from all our labors by doing and working what we were unable to do. Now the call of Christ is not to come and do this or be this or accomplish this or receive this. Because as Christ cried out on the cross, it is done. It is finished. There is no more work to be done. You can rest. We have a true Sabbath in Christ, an eternal Sabbath. But what about this elaboration of the Sabbath law? How does, how does Deuteronomy 15 point us to Jesus? And I think that financial debt is it's a great burden for so many. And, and some of you in here may, may have experienced the terror that comes with being in a hole of debt that you cannot escape. You may have felt that in a very real sense. And in that sense, Deuteronomy 15 feels like a pipe dream. That would never happen. Because financial debt feels like a prison. It feels like slavery. Where every paycheck goes to someone else. But there's a greater prison. There is a a greater slavery that, that exists that is far beyond financial debt. It's spiritual death. I mean, you can tell better than, than I can of the, the mistakes, the failures, the, the weaknesses in your own life. No one in this room knows it better than you do. And we know this and we feel it. We feel the mistakes that we've made. We know that we've, we've done bad things. And so what do we try and do? We try to balance the scales a little bit. To tip it back into our favor. That if we if we do good, then we can get out of the red and get back into the black. Maybe not into the green, but black sure would be nice. But is it possible? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, is that actually doable? Can the good you do outweigh the bad you've done? Does a murderer undo the death of a loved one by community service hours? Can a liar take back his words by giving to the poor? Can an abuser make amends by simply attending church? Does an adulterer become faithful by not complaining? No, it's not possible. I mean, this is a round hole and square peg type of thing. This doesn't work. It can't be done like this. The only solution to this enslaving debt is for someone to pay the bill. Enter Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of God himself. He owes no debt of his own because he is without sin. He has within himself a wealth unlike any other, the righteousness of God. What does he do? He swaps places. He swaps bank accounts. He swaps credit cards. He gives you his wealth and he takes your poverty. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. For though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty you might become rich. And this is done by his death on the cross, the the righteous dying for the unrighteous, taking our place, taking our debt, and then paying the bill that we could never pay. And this payment is not just to get you back to the black so that you get back on your feet and start over again on your own. No, this is to put you so far in the green that you'll never have to worry about another debt for the rest of eternity. This is better than winning the lottery. This is better than a government handout or better than a stipend or a deferral. This is redemption. This is, this is forgiveness. This is freedom. This is release. Paul, again, says in Colossians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of, the, of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our debts. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. With all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is, this is why Christ came. In Luke 4, Jesus stands in the, in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61. And this is what he reads to those listening. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. What other year could that be referring to except the sabbatical year? What other year in in Israel's history in the Old Testament could it point to? except for this year when when the poor are set free from their debts. When those oppressed and enslaved receive liberty and are released. Christ says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, except this is not a 365-day favor. This sabbatical extends all the way into eternity. Because the Sabbath has come and it will never end. now all those in Christ have been freed no one can ever say to you ever again you owe this debt you deserve to pay for what you've done because that payment has already been made you are released because the Lord's release has been proclaimed to you come to the Lord of the Sabbath be forgiven every spiritual debt you owe For it is a debt you cannot pay no matter how many payments you make. It will never be enough. But in his death and his resurrection, the Lord's release has been proclaimed. You are free. Debts have been paid. Forgiveness has been purchased. Fourth lens, final lens, the practical lens. What does this mean for you today? What does this mean for your life right now? Because because of Christ, we can see the the practical application of Deuteronomy 15. And it's not simply about releasing our slaves or or forgiving the loans that we give out. It's about caring for those that are trapped by the slavery of poverty and loving them with our generosity. I mean, the application of this passage is very, it's, it's actually quite simple. Open wide your hand to your brother or sister in need because Christ has opened wide his hand to you. Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, he tells them the story of this unforgiving servant. Where a master calls in a servant who owes a couple of weeks worth of wages. And the the servant comes in and he pleads with the master, I I don't have it, please give me more time, I will pay it back. And the master says, no, let's just call it even, I'll, I'll forgive the debt, you go about your way. And that servant leaves the master's place and he goes out and he finds another servant who owes him pocket change. And the servant immediately grabs him around the throat, says, where's my money? Throws him up against the wall, and when he cannot pay, he throws that man into jail. And then Jesus says this in the parable. He's telling him, the parable says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. His master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. I think it's an appropriate reminder of the the parable of the unforgiving servant that we, we, as we read Deuteronomy 15, need to be reminded. We need to be warned that it is easy for us to live tight-fistedly with what we have. This is mine. You cannot have it. And when someone comes asking for it, we look with them, look on them with contempt, begrudging them. Can't believe you would ask me of this. Don't you have it yourself? How dare you? Don't be mistaken. Verse nine in Deuteronomy 15 calls it very clearly, "It is sinful, it is sin. To withhold from the poor among you, to look grudgingly on them, to treat them as less than you, is sin. So instead, we must look to the extravagant generosity of Christ. He lived open-handedly, and he poured out his righteousness on you. We must live open-handedly with our brothers and sisters. If he has a need, then give it to him. If she is trapped under a debt, then you, more than anyone else, Christian, you should know what it feels like to be trapped under a debt you cannot pay. Work to help free them, because Christ has freed you. We also see the call to open wider hands in our worship. This chapter ends with this look at the sacrifice that's given to God, the firstborn of the herd, the flock, sacrificed in the presence of the Lord. Not allowing them to be worked or to be, to be shorn. This is a call for God's people to live open-handedly with the Lord. All that you have belongs to Him. So why do you close your fist around it as if it was yours? Like someone might steal it from you. Do not scorn or deride the poor as if they were somehow different from you. I mean, Without Christ, you are the poor. You are the impoverished. You are the destitute. You are the slave in Christ you are free. And the call of Christ is to work for the freedom of those still enslaved. and To worship the Lord of generosity. So let me ask you through this practical lens do you live generously with an open hand? Or do you live closed off and tight fisted? Scorning and deriding those beneath you? Are you more like Christ who sets the prisoner free, or are you more like the unforgiving servant who attacks those in need? Do you freely and generously give to the Lord out of what he has given you? Or do you resent giving your stuff away? Do you resent those who come asking for help? so much to be gained by reading this passage with all these various lenses. You can put on the economics glasses and see that God's economy is not like yours. It's not like ours. You can put on the social lenses and see that God's concern behind this law is is for the heart of his people. He wants to free those that are trapped in cycles of endless poverty. Put on the Christ-centered lenses see that this concern goes much deeper than financial, but it reaches to the heart of his people, lost in sin, enslaved by debt. But Christ has proclaimed the Lord's release, an eternal sabbatical where all debts have been released and all slaves have been freed. Or you can look at it practically. As you have been given, so you must give. If the Lord has given so much to you, who are you to deny The little bit that someone else is asking. I want to read to you from Psalm 34 as we close this morning. It is a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of praise meant to be sung and read in public among God's people. This is what the psalmist says I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Isn't it true, church? Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So when someone comes to you lacking something good, give. Because Christ has given to you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you've given us. Help us then to be generous and gracious as you are generous and gracious. Forgive us our debts. As we also forgive the debts of others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we respond to the preaching of God's Word this morning, we're going to take communion together, as we do every week. If you don't have uh, communion, Ron's at the back. Just raise your hand, and he'll bring one to you. But the reason we do communion every week is because, one, it's important. And two, it's, a, it's an opportunity to respond. At the table, we come on equal footing. We come not because we deserve to be here, but because Christ has made us worthy. And so if you are a believer in Christ... You may not be a member of the church here at Bear Creek, but if you are a believer in Christ, have confessed faith in him for, for salvation and the forgiveness of sins, then you are welcome at the table with us. But if that's not you, maybe you're not even sure. Then I'm, let me first say I'm glad you're here because there's no better place for you to be than right here this morning. And rather than take a, a wafer and some grape juice, let me encourage you to consider taking Christ instead. This does not forgive debt. He does. And he has forgiven all your sins and all your past mistakes, no matter how big the debt may be. It is paid in full. All you need to do is come to him. Christian, as you and I come to this table, we are reminded of what it took to pay our debt. It was no small thing for Christ to do it. But this he did. And so we come to the table. We see first the bread. And we see in the bread the body of Christ broken for you. What did it take to forgive all your debts? It took this. The body of Christ broken for you. Now, I do believe that the Lord's table is a great opportunity to reflect on our sin and to reflect on what our sin has cost. But at no point should the Lord's table ever be a sad thing. Because let me assure you, church, the body of Christ that was broken for you is not broken anymore. But he is risen, he is alive, and he is sitting on his throne ready to come back and and reclaim his bride. And so as we turn to the cup, we are reminded of the joy that waits, of the freedom that awaits, of the celebration that awaits, of the the wedding that we're waiting on, of the feast that is waiting. We are reminded of the king that we are waiting for. To the king. As we close our worship service, we will sing one more hymn together, Hymn 474, I Surrender All. Please stand and sing. before we say our our benediction together, I'll remind you, if you're a member at Bear Creek, uh, please stay so we can have a business meeting quickly and go over a few things of of importance for the church. If you're not a member, I'll be at the back to to say hello to you on your way out this this morning. We do have sign-ups in the back for missionary sale. Make sure you look over those before you leave this morning. But if you'll turn your attention in the the bulletin, you'll find printed the Great Commission. There it is, printed the, the last command, the last law that Christ gave to his people. And this is what we as his people must be about. And so I invite you to say aloud the Great Commission with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.